This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. Consider becoming a Drama Victoria member today to take advantage of the many member benefits. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We record on the land of the Bunurong people and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're speaking with two members of the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child's creative team, John Shearman, Associate Movement Director, and David Spencer, the Resident Director. Today we will discuss the production from a theatre studies perspective, so we may leave the gushing about how magnificent this production is off mic. That being said, this marvellous production has created true magic on stage and is an incredible theatrical achievement. The fact that Australian cast and creatives were part of remounting this worldwide phenomenon is a testament to our love and passion for creating innovative and meaningful theatre. This episode includes the entire interview with David and John. There's also an option to listen to just the Unit 3 questions and just the Unit 4 questions. Feel free to skip to those episodes if you wish to focus on either of those units of work. Without further ado, I bring you John Shearman and David Spencer. Welcome to the podcast, John Shearman and David Spencer. Hi there, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. I really appreciate your time. It means a lot to us. Uh, we're going to start by talking about Unit 3 Theatre Studies questions. Um, so how was the context of the original script interpreted in this production? This could be about editing the script from a three-hour version or how, sorry, two or three-hour version or how specific stage directions were changed. You could talk about how Harry's memories were omitted or perhaps how you increase the focus on specific relationships. How was the context changed? Um, so in the conversion from one part, is it sure? Yeah. yeah. You, do you mean in the conversion from the two parts, the one part production? Absolutely. Yeah. Or, yeah. or in any other small or subtle way. Workshops took place in London a couple of years ago um, with some of the London cast. And they, I think kind of everything was on the table from what I gather. Um, it was a more of a, let's see what does work and what doesn't. It was a bit of a trial and error. Um, and that process itself was refined in each production that was wound out so um new york was first to convert to the one part and um then san francisco and then we were here in melbourne and each time that was refined um so new additions were made to the scripts new cuts new edits um and choreography and sections and sequences changed and orders changed as well um and it was just about the trial and error about finding what worked best for the piece and what gave it the most um flow from what I gather. And I, I agree with what John said. And I think also a, a big part of that change was the fact that the time that had uh, elapsed since the first workshops of the original production and a post-COVID world were, was a significant length of time. And I think there had been significant social changes during that time. And I think it gave the original creatives an opportunity to perhaps put forward their original intentions of the story in a world that had become more open to hearing a story about the wizarding world that included a relationship between uh, Scorpius and ours and uh, where we could perhaps be a bit more economical knowing that we'd had a further almost 10 years and and people had an understanding of that wizarding world and we could perhaps not 
show them that story again through flashbacks, but actually uh, consider some of the story assumed knowledge. So we could be a little bit more economical in telling the newer story. Yeah, and that might be in relation to Harry's memories being omitted. Do you think that's a key example of that? That's exactly right. I think the 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 flashbacks into Harry, Harry's memories were fantastic. They were a beautiful part of the production, a really popular part of the production. But um, I think in the end, they were probably just that. They were they were icing on the cake and they didn't really advance the story. They gave us a chance to really reminisce and, and enjoy those older characters, but it didn't really take the story in um, a new direction or or add to the story that was being told today. And um, so, you know, really just from a from a practical point of view, it it was easy enough to to cut those out and just stick to the the, the newer story that was being told. I, I think the adaptation allowed certain relationships to be developed further though. Um, like Albus and Scorpius, I think the way their relationship in this production is depicted in comparison to the one part, in comparison to the two parts, sorry, is um, a lot deeper and richer. And I think as, as David was saying, like that, that decade that's passed has allowed um, certain aspects of that relationship to be highlighted on stage more so than they would have been originally. Yeah, it was, that was really evident in, in watching and comparing the two parts. Absolutely. Um, we talk a little bit in theatre studies about recontextualizing plays or modernizing plays, and to a certain extent, the from the from the going from the two part to the one part, uh, the play has been modernized to be clearer about Albus and Scorpius's budding relationship. Uh, there are other key moments that you think have been updated to fit into modern Australia. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I, I do, I do think, I, I do think so, but I also think perhaps in some ways more could be done for that. I think there's a real um, there's a real sense of being able to show that relationship, but there's also a movement in language um, that is a little bit more modern. I think if you go right back to um, the first and second books, I think a lot of the dialogue from that time is really quite um, quite different to the language that's used by the, the modern characters, um, the, the language that we hear the younger characters um, speaking on Hogwarts Express, uh, in the Quidditch pitch, in the maze, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, I think it, in, in, a, in a really basic language sense, I think it, it, there's a lot of modernised speak that um, shows the story moving in a, in a forward direction in a more sort of modern way. I, I think too that originally when we started performing this piece, the play was set in the future. And now we have passed that time period where the play is set and it's now <laughs> um, a historical piece, I suppose. It's set in the past from where we are. And um, I think there are certain aspects of the production that I look at now and I go, oh, I see either the language or the costuming has dated it and made it of that era, um, particularly the costuming around Delphi. I find that really, for me, that shows when the production was made and, and um, set, shows the setting a lot clearer to me now in the, in the future. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with with John. I think Delphi stands out as one character who really um, makes a statement of, about exactly where this particular story is, is set. And when 
she was first conceived you know it was it was quite a sort of futuristic look of this bird-like creature with with blue and silver hair and um, that was very much sort of part of the the budding sort of fashion at the time and now looking back uh, it, it, she she almost dates dates the piece in in a in a visual sense mm. um, for, further on to the question you asked though I think the other thing that I think is really um, has modernised this piece is is a very, and I know we use these words as sort of buzzwords quite a lot, but it's a very sort of inclusive piece as far as looking at characters who are from a variety of cultural backgrounds. It was very much the case that there were, you know, we, we had um, uh, Padma and we had Cho Chang and we had... Um, some characters who were definitely not um, just uh, a, an Anglo-Saxon group of people, but I think there were definite decisions when the story became one um, of a new generation that, for instance, you know, Hermione being cast as a woman of colour was a, was a big story at the time. And I think that continues to evolve to be an example of increased demand for and increased desire to show inclusiveness as you look at the productions around the world and have people from different cultural backgrounds playing all of those different roles, including in our production. No, oh, thank you so much. That's you know, fantastic examples of how the production has been modernised, how this interpretation um, uh, uh, is taking place in the modern Australia. Thank you so very much. Um, so from my point of view, the time turner, when it's used, the stage transforms in a way that no other production has managed and creates a true and real sense of magic. I mean, these theatrical, this theatrical moment stays with the audience for a really long time. That's a really transformative use of theatre technology, all these different things coming together. Why do you think theatricality is so important to the work, making the impossible possible? What elements are at play without being too specific and obviously ruining the magic in this time turner moment where we actually, the stage literally seems to morph and shake. It's incredible. Is it simpler than we think, more complex than we could possibly ever know? Is there any information you can give us on this exceptional moment of theatre? I think there was a real need for magic to be apparent as part of this production. You know, obviously, we're talking about a magical world, a, a fantasy world, but for it to really truly translate into a, a piece on the stage, the audience had to believe in some of that magic. So there had to be some experiences, and that's experiences visually and also physically that made them doubt what they were seeing and question what they were seeing as being understandable, as, as being true natural experiences and and without going into exactly how those moments were created i think there's an intentional visual uh trick in there but also the great sort of sonic and and vibrational sense that goes through the theater which almost it, it's an unsettling uh, sensation for the audience you know there's that real bass sense that you can feel shake you internally and it makes you just momentarily question what's happening. And I think that was a really intentional way of trying to break down that uh, traditional uh, sense of theatre and make people really question what they're experiencing 
hopefully make them um, really not understand it and, um, and have that sense of magic. And look, I think while well, we've got the, the bells and whistles, like the technology which helps advance that and show the audience what we want, um, we also rely on really old school theatrical technique in the show. Lots of um, magic and illusion stuff that comes from, um, from Thordville. Um, or I, a lot of magicians will see the show and maybe be, be able to pick a few bits and pieces. But um, I think what we do so well is we layer it. There's so many things happening at once that um, even those best magicians don't see everything. <laughs> they don't get it all. Um, and I think in a world like Harry Potter, which is so established and everyone uh, gets out there in the zeitgeist and everyone has an image of it in their head and it, um, like the films are so ubiquitous um, that there was a sense, I think, in the show that you kind of have to match that. Um, other shows, um, they show the convention. Um, I don't know, like Warhorse toured here last year and you see everything in that. You see the puppeteers, you see them manipulating the object. Um, whereas in the world of Harry Potter and the world that's kind of established in, in the community's our, our mind, uh, we've, got to, we've got to match that, I feel. And um, I hope we do. <laughs> oh, you, you do and then some. I know I'm only talking about the time turner moments where time literally transform trans, transforms on stage but there are so many beautiful moments and that idea of layering is is tremendous um, theater study students are asked to talk about theater technologies um, mechanical electronic and digital and they're asked mm. to separate those and think about them in terms of the production that they saw and how theater technologies were applied and i think in this in this case there's a lot of a some guesswork about, oh, I think that might be happening and that's layered upon that. And while that's happening, this thing might be happening or this hidden device. Uh, so it really is a, an exceptional show to make you believe in magic. It's really, truly wonderful. So I'm just wondering how you think um, production and design choices, uh, costume, lighting, sound, direction, acting, enhance the audience's understanding of a main theme of the work. Or another way to ask that question is, what do you see as a major theme of the work? And how do you think this is emphasised in one key scene, like multiple areas of production working together to establish a clear moment or theme? For me, the passage of time is a massive part of the show and it's wound into the design, woven into the design of the show. You've got the clocks there set in the set, um, the time turns. And also when we begin the play, the, we start at, platform, uh, at King's Cross Station and time is frozen. Um, everything is frozen. The sorting hat's hat is floating in the air. All the suitcases are still. And the sorting hat comes out and restarts everything. And for me, that's kind of us picking up 20 years, 19 years later after leaving Harry in that final book. Um, time stopped for the audience. Time stopped for the reader. Um, and this is kind of the production's little way of going, here we are, we're picking back up where we left off. And from that point on, we manipulate time throughout the show. We had these moments we call bullet time. Um, where uh, in the campaign room with Snape, um, Scorpius and Hermione and Ron, um, when Scorpius is explaining <laughs> how he got there in the world and um, how he got to their world, um, we speed up the music and we have the lights strobing and everyone moves in um, a really stylized way. And that's to show almost as if you had a camera above the space or in the audience and you've just pressed fast forward because we know what's happening as an audience, but we're just quickly showing it and skipping to the next vital bit of information. And I think that's one part that the show does really well. It, um, of course, it's skipping back and forth through time, but we're also 
crunch, um, truncating and crunching time for the audience to show what we want when we want, and then we extend it in certain parts. Um, for me, that's one of the major themes of it. And also, um, how do you deal with that? Like Harry is dealing with the passage of time as a, as a father and um, having aged into this role and not really sure of, um, he's not really sure of how to go about it. You know what I mean? He's not doing the best job. Um, and also he's reflecting back on the things, the traumas he experienced as a child and how they didn't maybe really prepare him for fatherhood in the same way. So I think for me, um, time and the passage of time is a massive part of this show. Thank you. Incredibly clear examples of time there. Um, David, is there a moment that you wanted to mention or talk about? Uh, no, I think it's, it's um, there are so many themes and sort of picking them apart uh, is, is a challenging thing to do. I think there are, John sort of touched on it just a moment ago. There are so, there's so much, um, as is the case in a lot of Jack Thorne's work, so much about parenthood and, and comparing different childhoods and, and our own experience of our childhood compared to that of our parents and, and our, our ability to relate to our children, the changes with time that is very, very clear in, in this story uh, as, as, you know, as another one of those, those stories. So I think the first thing I thought of when you asked that question was that we are we we're dealing with this central character who has been an orphan and uh, is negotiating parenthood and and a relationship with his family without the um, experience of, of 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 having parents aside from these sort of uh, time based um, experiences where he's been able to in the wizarding world go back and and see his his family or or, or be visited by their, their you know their their spirits i guess um and the first thing i thought of was just this idea of of interwoven uh relationships between parents and their children and and the trauma associated with that the the, the scene that jumps into my mind is Albus's bedroom um, near the beginning of the show where uh, Harry comes in and is really trying to um, connect with his son and and offers him a, a practical pre present of the blanket he was wrapped in as a child and uh, and we set up this idea of these two these two characters this father and this son who really are not meeting each other and not seeing each other and hearing each other and uh, just all of the symbolism that we have within that that moment of them sort of sitting on this uh, on this bed, offering each each other ways into each other's world, but not really hearing that, and um, and seeing how that uh, then results in in this conflict, then propels the story onwards. Um, so much of what Harry does for the re remainder of the story. Uh, that we see is is trying to make amends for what was said in that moment and Albus trying to come to terms with the fact that his father's human. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's one theme that that I see as being really prominent throughout the story. We have a lot of different parent-child relationships thrown up against each other we, and we are forced to compare those and um, 
and see, um, you know, see how flawed these sorts of relationships can be and see ways of, of um, making them work. Tremendous. Thank you so very much. Uh, that concludes our questions about Unit 3 Theatre Studies. So thank you so very much for your time answering those questions. No trouble. No worries. Great. We might move on to uh, asking questions about Unit 4 that have a slightly different focus. They focus more on um, the acting and direction and design and how they work together. So the questions I'm going to ask here are slightly different. And thank you so very much for your outstanding responses so far. Um, could you describe the contrasting uh, status, motivation, and characteristics of Draco and Scorpius? Uh, I think it, if um, if I can start with that one, I think they both are characters who are set up with a higher than usual social status to begin with. Draco is um, is. Is, is aristocracy. He's part of the higher end of the, the wizarding world in a social sense and by birth Scorpius is part of that. Um, but Scorpius uh, at the same time is not fitting in and uh, so in one sense he's from this aristocracy and he is a little bit untouchable and we see that uh, even though he's socially awkward and 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 that's what he has in common with Albus, we notice that Albus is the one who is more clearly being bullied because um, I think people are frightened of 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 Scorpius, whereas they really see um, see Albus as being fair game and and, and an easy target uh, in in the school world of of sort of the of Hogwarts and, and and the social world within that. So I think that both Draco and Scorpius have a set status by birth. Um, and I think uh, Scorpius socially has a has a lower status by by nature, and it's that that um, gives him a, a commonality with Albus that starts off their, I guess their their ease with interacting with one another. Yeah, I, I think in, in the world of the show too, like um, Draco is potentially recovering from the events of the book of the book series, um, and we've learned all these things that happened to him. Like he's he's met his wife and she's passed away, and he's he's kind of got this cotton wool protection around his son. He's really defensive. Like the first time we see him is on platform nine and three quarters, and he's asking Harry for a favor to um to protect his son a little bit more from the community 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 at large and um i think there's what we're seeing straight away there is a real contrast from the draco we knew from the books and the films um he's grown um and while he's got this higher status he's 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 using it <laughs> in a different way than he used to um and i think what we see in scorpius is because you expect a malfoy like in the in the original books Draco's introduction is pretty memorable. He's pretty dislikable. And I think what we've done in the show, what happens in the show is we have this complete contrast. When Scorpius is introduced, he's so lovable and likable. And it's this um, <laughs> complete 180 from what we got in the books. And I, I, I think turning this show becomes about the Malfoys in a way, because um, you're subverting the audience's expectation of them. Like Draco is dislikable at first, but he's asking for a, a 
a really positive thing to protect his son. He's, um, he's motivated by good um, and uh, by love. And I think Draco's motivation throughout the entire show is just motivated for the love and um, for his child and to protect him. Um, and I think that shows, and you've got this wonderful character who's so beloved, like Scorpius is the breakout role in the show, I think. Um, and the audience just embrace him. Um, and I think that's a major part of what this show has done with the Malfoys is to subvert the audience, ex audience's expectation of what the, who the Malfoys are. And the show does it so beautifully as well. Absolutely. I'm lucky enough to be good friends with Will McKenna, who created the role, or work created the role in that first uh, production of Harry Potter. What an incredible show. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering, why does Albus want to save Cedric, do we think? Oh, I think Albus sees himself as having things in common with Cedric. He says it himself. He says, you know, he, he, the, the word spare resonates uh, within Albus. I think he is, is lost and he doesn't see himself as having a clear identity as, he, as he's, he's really trying to find that part of himself and yeah. find that sense of purpose. And I think he sees the the way that Voldemort has looked upon him as being uh, as Cedric as being a, a spare and thinks that's exactly how I feel I feel I feel unnecessary I feel purposeless I feel um uh, you, you know expendable and I also think there's part of Albus that's constantly comparing himself to his father and and being reminded um, by others of his father's um, his father's adventures and his father's um, incredible achievements. And I think he sees that as an opportunity to perhaps show his own ability to do something good for the world. So I think in a practical sense, he finds himself an adventure, but he also finds himself a purpose. Um, and so I think in many ways, he uses that sense of identification with Cedric um, in his um, in his quest to to find um, some meaning within his own life. Beautiful. Thank you so very much. How would you say the actors playing Snape and Rose have used their acting skills, so their facial expressions, their voice, their gestures, their movements, maybe even stillness and silence, to bring their characters to life? Mm. Uh, look, a lot of this too, a lot of their physicality, I find, particularly with the Snapes, is informed by their costume. Um, the costume is so long and flowing, and it requires a certain amount of care to move in it properly. It requires a certain amount of um, foresight and planning. Um, and I think that really informs Snape. Like you, you have this wonderful image, like they're all, all our actors who play Snape are so tall, but they're quite um, still in their performances. Um, and I think that's, <laughs> um, I think that costume has really informed that, but also to, um, in comparison to someone like Scorpius, a lot of their, all their scenes as Snape are played opposite Scorpius, who's this really highly energetic, um, fast moving character. And I think having that contrast there on stage, this older, wiser figure who does maintain the stillness and the silence um, really benefits in, in that way. And um, there's always, Snape's always measured and deliberate. Um, 
Rose, look, I think you've got this incredible design for her with those puffs on her head, those pom-poms. Her hair is done in these big, um, uh, kind of like puffs, I suppose we call them. And uh, that cloak as well, any short, sharp movements really uh, <laughs> make that character sing like she... It's a little pocket rocket. Um, we want to see her as Hermione. We want to imagine her as Hermione was 20 years ago. Um, and I think the actors who come into Rose are front-footed, um, really front-footed with a high energy and drive the dialogue are really successful. Um, but everything's always open up for interpretation. But I really find the actors who step into those roles with that intention are successful. Oh, thank you so very much. Amazing detail there. Thank you. Uh, can you think of a moment where the actors manipulate their focus to enhance the intended meaning of the work? I think about the gossip scene where rumors are spreading and how the actors look, how, how the actors looks just tell us so much about what we need to know without words. Does focus help us understand in that moment? Yeah, I, I talk a lot, as a movie director, I talk a lot to the actors about this. Um, in certain moments of the show, Lemmings is one. That's the the staircase scene where they're passing the notes back and forth. Another one for me is staircase ballet, because um, these are moments where you have actors manipulating an object on stage in full view of the audience. Then actors manipulating the staircase, and we're making believe that that's the moving staircase in Hogwarts. Um, but one of the principles I find with that is that for the actors on stage, if they are throwing their focus to where we want the audience to be looking automatically we're directing the audience's attention there. So all those people in the staircase ballet are looking at those two boys on the stairs and they're taking in that story. And it's kind of almost like switching off a little light in that performer. So the audience kind of goes, okay, you know what? I'm throwing my focus to where they are as well. Um, and Lemmings is a really specific um, example of that where the cast on stage are throwing their focus back and forth. And it's just, human nature we follow <laughs> someone points you look in that direction as well you check out what's happening um and that was working conjunction with um chris fisher and lee cohen who are illusionists on the show um that was a collaboration of trying to figure out when we are throwing focus and where to at what time <laughs> yeah, right i think um sorry to interrupt you nick yeah. i i think that that's a really interesting scene the the staircase ballet because we we go into this scene having seen the um the relationship between scorpius and and albus you know become uh, fractured <clears throat> and it's such a dreamy sort of scene. It's a, it's, it's, it really is a ballet. It was, uh, John knows a lot more about this part of the movement than, than I do, but it was actually, it was a scene on stairs that, that was a scene with dialogue. And... Yeah. Originally there was dialogue from what I've been told in that scene and just gradually it was removed until. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that that was really um that's that's a beautiful example of how two people can be on stage and say nothing but tell the story that uh, that a written scene could do just simply by being moved around but also by looking at each other or looking away from each other or looking for one another or looking where one another ha have been or might be going to um and that's the interesting thing about that scene is we see them look for one another 
and then they appear and we see them look at where um, the other one is going and we see that person disappear in that direction. We see them looking for one another. They, they appear again at the top of the stairs. Um, and there's so much about just that, um, the, those sort of signpostings of, of emotions in that scene that then are delivered to us in movement that, that tell the story really effectively without any language. And I think the music is a massive part of that scene as well. Like it, it gives us that emotional catharsis and takes us on that journey with the actors and all they have, as you said, Dr. David, they all they have to do is look at each other and it, we ride with it. And oh no, boy, do we absolutely <laughs> many, many of my students favorite moment um, is that is the staircase ballet. It's beautiful. Um, I would like to talk briefly about how the actors utilize the performance space. It's, I mean, from the pool under the stage to flying high above the audience. I mean, the space is used wonderfully throughout the space and there's probably uses of spaces we don't see. Perhaps there are people moving the mazes. Perhaps there aren't. I don't know. You don't have to tell us. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I appreciate there's probably movement happening that we're not aware of. Um, but, but a moment I feel like where no secrets will be revealed uh, is in the ministry scene where Hermione and Harry are placed above the other ministers of magic and Draco is his um, downstage right um, with his back to everyone. Is is is, is this a, a great example of the actors utilising the performance space or do you feel like there's another moment? I, I think that, I think it is an exact, a really good example of that. I think we, clearly going into the ministry, um, Hermione, Harry, Ginny, um, even Ron have, have probably all been together deciding what they need to do to get everybody together to realize um as as one group that something is afoot something is happening there's danger um out there and we need to get together and make a plan and having them come in front of all of the ministers and stand above them immediately um, tells us this is important this is uh, a moment where we need to show leadership but just the fact that Draco turns up, he's not a minister, but he uses his, his influence and his, um, his, his, um, his, his born status to be there and is able to disrupt that and absolutely um, sort of dislocate all of those intentions that um, were established or tried tried to be established at the beginning of the scene is a is a great way to um, to manipulate space and manipulate status uh, really effectively um, and it, it's I I love in that scene the way that you know we we have this really strong picture of Hermione and and Harry on top of those stairs and at the end it it almost that that whole scene falls apart as the stairs are pulled away from each other into darkness and they descend those stairs and there's just this general sort of grumbling and shouting and and basically you know a, a shattered plan and I remember early on in the rehearsals having a chat with John Tiffany about some of those scenes and why they were directed the way they were and he said that he really dislikes when things are opened up for staging, staging purposes, you know, when um, actors cheat out and open up to an audience. Um, and he was like, look, we can establish the exact same intention, but play a bit more naturally. So that moment of Draco having his back to the audience um, gives him so much power <laughs> um, because it forces Harry and Hermione from up high to look down at him 
And even though the audience are just getting the back of a blonde wig, all our focus is on him in that moment. Um, and I think that happens a lot in the play as well, where we don't open it up um, and the actors can throw to each other across the stage. And I think modern audiences are maybe a bit more, um, a bit more accepting of that and um, go along with it a lot more. And in terms of the space itself to look like the staircase gives us that massive elevation so we can play scenes up high. Um, Cause most of the time you see that the princess theater is a massive space. Um, the proscenium, I'm not sure how high it is, but usually in most shows, that's a bit of dead space. So you're playing just on the stage and anything above things are flown in. Um, but unless you've got a set that builds another level, you don't ever get to use that space. Um, and I think part of this show was making it seem like the whole audience had been taken um, to Hogwarts or to the Wizarding World. And that starts from the foyer with a carpet and the light fixtures and um, the seating, <laughs> the Harry Potter carpet. Um, and there are moments in the show, as you said, the, the Dementors, um, parts of the show where it extends out over the audience, either through lighting um, or moments where characters walk through the audience and I think that's all part of it Matt, making the audience feel like they're their part of the world uh, there's a moment that is always really effective and I don't know if anyone really knows it's happening but when um, Scorpius and Albus see Hogwarts for the first time and they're standing on stage center stage and the forest is kind of opening and clearing behind them and Imogen Heap's got this incredible piece of music and the lights flare and for the first time, the auditorium is illuminated and we've got these amazing stained glass windows on the side there too, which have a big H for Hogwarts in them. And it's just this small moment that we constantly have to remind the actors is really important. Because um, when I saw the show, it's just this moment of emotional catharsis. I felt like I was really there with Scorpius and Albus looking at Hogwarts. Um, and it's all those, little, all those little techniques come together to take the audience to that point. Um, but what it requires is the actors to hold their nerve and to not deliver their next line, to let this piece of music really fill the space and the denouement, to let it kind of fade off before they begin their next bit of dialogue. Um, and I think that happens at a lot of different points throughout the show. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think there's a real intention of opening up and using as much space as we can and making people feel that the the wizarding world isn't just on the stage but is all around them and and could be anywhere and and change at any time and i think you know the the points at which i i see that being really intentionally done is obviously with the the dementor who comes out into the audience um at the end of act one but also when we're going to Delphi's room and we're discovering um, her, her, her writings on the wall and then we see gradually all of that writing become uh, lit up in, in UV around the, the rest of the auditorium. It really encapsulates you within that space and within that magic and within that danger, I think, as well, which is a really effective way of of using space and also extending that sense of um of of magic and uh, and also making people sort of doubt where they're safe and where where they where they where they're not um you know and another example is having having um Voldemort walk through the crowd i mean i think that's that's a a, a really 
an age-old tactic to 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 bring that um, that sense of danger towards an audience, but also at that particular point in the show, you know, we've already established that the magic within the space can be anywhere, and with him coming out and into the audience, and and trying to sort of avoid any um, any you know, uh, I guess. Um, I guess Disney-like um, yeah. a villainous sort of uh, portrayal of him actually making people aware that um, something else is is drawing them in really enhances that that sensation of, of 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 danger and risk around the place. And I think we do that in subtle ways throughout the show. Like it's done really subtly. Like the sound design from the beginning. I the Forbidden Forest when we meet Bane the Centaur. To me that moment always no matter where I sit in the auditorium I get a different experience of it because the sound design makes you feel like you're part of the forest and there is or you in the forest there's a certain point in the dress circle where I sat before where it literally sounds like there's a creature in the bushes behind you and it's really unsettling <laughs> it makes you feel like you're actually part of the space it, it yeah uh, absolutely the, the students in unit four also have to think about how we uh, manipulate the actor audience relationship and i've got a question about that in, in a moment but i think even lots of your responses they've been really helpful in understanding um and how you manipulate that throughout the work um, so thank you so very much so many fantastic examples um i, I wonder if we can uh, pivot to thinking about how language is used in the script to convey the playwrights or the director's intended meaning um so the script has changed a lot to make the relationship between albus and scorpius more clear uh, the meaning of the work has become not only about accepting the past and your present but also about accepting who you are and being loved for it what do you think are some key moments that you think exemplify this or even key lines or bits of dialogue from the script uh, the first thing that jumps into my mind is just the relationship between Albus and Scorpius is never really talked about directly until the final scene. We we have a feeling that something is going on. You know, they 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 immediately have this um, this real ease with one another from the Hogwarts Express one where they they meet and um and scorpius is so disarming and 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 albus chooses to stay to later on when we see the the tension between the two of them and and it's only through through really um challenging moments that they're forced to actually verbalize what's going on um you know when when Snape and Scorpius are uh, are outside of Hogwarts and the Dementors are circling. It's only at that mo that moment when Snape says, "Who are you fighting for? Who are you fighting for?" This is a life and death situation. And Scorpius says, "Albus, I I think it's Albus." Um, you know, there's a real sense of our difficulty in being able to verbalize what we're feeling, a reluctance to verbalize what we're feeling, and um, uh, a, a fear of doing so, and later on, um, you know, in in the in the church, even Ginny, who knows that um, Albus and and Scorpius have um, this incredible um, friendship and and burgeoning relationship, 
even she has difficulty verbalizing it for him and says, you know, I can see you found wonderful clarity and it makes me very proud of you. But we're still not saying what it is. And even on the stairs, the final staircase, um, you know, we're, we're in a situation where, where, where Rose says to Albus, you know, this is, this is only going to be weird if you, if you let it be weird. Are you okay, Albus? And once again, there's a real difficulty verbalising it. And finally, we see Albus in um, Beautiful Hill saying to his dad, you know, Scorpius is the most important person in my life. Um, and he may always be so. And, and we hear, um, you know, we hear Harry say, and, and you know, and, and I think that that's a good thing. And, and that sort of sense of acceptance, it's just such a long, painful journey that I think a lot of people in the audience can relate to. And by drawing it out in that way, I think it really enhances the importance of that relationship, the difficulty that's still faced by people with um, this sort of in this situation and um and it just makes it all that much sweeter to finally have that sort of sense of acceptance that we can move on from this and we're moving on to a better place i think jack thorne's choices as well in the way he's structured the play and, and the language he's chosen to use um really helps in that way too like jack jack comes from a tv background and i find that a lot of our scenes are written like like a tv show you pick up um you don't get an introduction to the scene like you maybe do it in a traditional play you pick up exact in, in the middle of the action um in each scene um and the actors are uh, there's not really much subtext going on they're saying the what we like to say a lot is the thought is on the line the actors are synthesizing and saying the lines as they get the information coming into them so there's not a lot of um tactics or sub subtext happening where they're trying to win or get something and I think that's um, at times it's really different to traditional thing like Greek, um, like Greek theatre or Shakespeare. We always say, "Oh, that character comes on and goes." Oh, that thing happened off stage. Whereas in our show, we show what happened on stage. We show it happening, and the actors respond to it in real time. Um, so those language choices are something that just allows the audience. What, the actors are kind of saying what the audience are experiencing at the same time. Um, and I think that Jack is really clever in that and he's chosen a lot of modern colloquial, colloquial language that um, allows our audiences, particularly a lot of people are first time theatre goers, it's pretty disarming. It allows them to come in and just, and take it on it. You consume it like a TV show. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's a terrific to watch and, and be part of and hear that language being used and helping us experience that along with the characters on stage. I couldn't agree more. Um, from, I mean, I'm just talking from an audience perspective that we picked that up. We see that it's working. It's working. Mm. Uh, so are there clear examples, do you feel of elements of theater composition in the piece? I mean, motion is used throughout and you talk about it beautifully to establish mood and setting and character. I mean, look at the contrast between the start of act one, and the start of act two Hogwarts in these two alternate worlds. Um, can you talk about a moment where rhythm was really important? Um, things that jump out at me are perhaps the maze scene on the Quidditch pitch or maybe the energy of the race mixed with the quiet moment between Cedric and Albus about his father. Do you think rhythm plays an important role in this piece? I, I think it does. And I think particularly in, in storytelling moments, 
Um, we use rhythm to get a sense of excitement um, and an a sense of, um, of um, really allowing the um, experience of finding a solution to be that much more apparent to the audience. The first thing that I think comes to mind is when Scorpius and Albus are in Godric's Hollow and they're lost without a time turner. You notice that that scene starts off so, so they're so lost. They don't really, they're, they're, they're looking for a solution. They're, they're almost at the point where they think we, we may be lost and we may be lost here forever. And then we see them work together and, and Albus having the realisation about the blanket which hasn't been touched in his room since he he left and coming together with Scorpius to work out that um, if um, demiguys and the the love potion come together they burn and um, so that that realization of a solution you notice that the tempo um, of that scene uh, goes from sort of this slowness to this clunkiness to this really fast rhythm and um, by the end of it, we have this absolute sense of excitement because there's this possibility of, of a solution and, and them being saved. And I think they do that really, really cleverly with, um, with the script. Look, I think rhythm, it, it, like the whole show, we rely a lot on it. And it's about us, about the cast coming together and the crew coming together to decide what the rhythm of the show is. Like one example of that is the end of Act One, um, after the Dementors have flown, and the big Voldemort banner has come in and there's a little sign flashes up to be continued to let the audience know that we're coming back for act two. And in the old two part, that meant go away, have dinner, come back for part two. <laughs> um, but the debates that raged in the auditorium during tech about when that sign was to flash up, because what it is is about pulling the audience along with you and building the excitement in them as well. So they've just had this incredible sequence with Dementors flying overhead and they all go crazy. Um, and there was a bit of trial and error to find when is the best point so to bring up that to be continued because we know that's going to set them into overdrive again. So you've got to let the audience kind of crest that wave of excitement and then it goes up to build it again. Um, and that ha that happens a lots of different points throughout the piece. So finding the exact rhythm of an effect or a, a movement sequence or um, even the delivery of some information to the audience. Like you, you're teasing out, you want the audience to be hanging on your every word. So if you're going to suspend a moment and then deliver the information, um, there's a lot of trial and error, but that's usually the way we go. <laughs> it's about bringing the audience with us. Uh, beautiful. Oh, we, we've talked a little bit about how the actor-audience relationship is manipulated or established and maintained. This does appear to be a kind of a fourth wall piece for much of the show, but there's also great moments where the wall is broken and we're immersed in that world. How and when did you decide to do this? I mean, we talked about Voldemort exiting and the Dementors arriving and the words on the wall and, of course, the beautiful arrival at Hogwarts with that music. To what extent do you think there is a consistent relationship with the audience? I think without a relationship with the audience, obviously we, 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 we've failed. I think that we, we're in a position now in, you know, in, in, in 2023 to be able to use, um, you know, use lighting, use music, but also use other devices such as the digital world um, and to think 
in, in a more modern way about how we can really bring the audience into being a part of that story. So I think that's exactly why all of that um, decision to to perhaps move the the fourth wall to the back of the auditorium in some ways um, was was a deliberate choice to really create this world um, that included the audience so that th this experience was was constant and um, and uh, and and new. Uh, I think that that was very much a deliberate um, device used right from the get-go when the story was first conceived. Yeah, I agree. Beautiful. Um, this is our, our final question. Uh, so thank you so very much for your time today. Um, how do the actors, in your view, demonstrate the theatrical style of the production? And if we want to talk about other elements, we can. Do you think there is a defined theatrical style here beyond eclectic theatre using elements of lots of different theatre styles? Yeah. Is magic realism intentionally used, gothic theatre, something else? Look, I think we draw from a lot of different styles in the show. Like there are moments that like, vaudevillian um moments are almost like um like the traditional fourth wall proscenium arch theater but then we also draw a lot from magic <laughs> and magic and illusion shows um and i i think that it's 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 more of a that all comes together to create the unique style that is harry potter um without drawing from all those different places we wouldn't have that unique experience you have um and there are certain moments in the show where uh i've had to talk actors into <laughs> going with that style um there's a moment in the ministry corridor where we really break into farce um where harry and hermione they have that body double switch and the other actors come on stage and it, a lot of actors early on didn't really want to go down that path because it doesn't feel it feels a bit naff at times um to lean into all that really physical stylized comedy where you're looking left right up down um and it, it's about getting the actors comfortable enough to understand that this play supports that um, and that the writing supports that and the style of it, it's actually got quite a wide bandwidth of what <laughs> is acceptable within the world. Um, and those moments, if we can bring them out and highlight them, just add to that eclectic nature. Like I think that's the world of Harry Potter. You've got those eclectic teachers at Hogwarts. Everything's a bit off kilter. Um, and I think that really works in the performance style. And further on from that, I think what's really important in this play is, you know, it, it, it is a fantasy um, at heart. You know, there's there's nothing more exciting than for, for an actor to be given permission, I think, to wear a cape and and to hold a, a, a stick and be a, a powerful wizard. <laughs> but there's so much in really imbuing that with um, a sense of realism as well. So we, we create this, this fantasy, we do all these um, magical tricks, but then in the middle of it, we come back down to just your basic naturalistic acting examples being um, the bedroom scene with, with Harry and Ginny, um, the, the, the bedroom scene with, um, with Albus and Harry, and then later in the Slytherin dorm with, with Harry and, and Albus, you know, we, we go back to really simple, traditional, realistic moments, which then I think make us believe more the, the fantasy ones showing that these are actually, actually real people 
who just happen to have extraordinary powers. And I think that makes the whole story that much more credible. Uh, and I think that's a real intention in the piece as well to show the fantasy, but also really um, anchor it down in, in true problems and, and truthful acting. I think that's also too, we, we always show the muggle world as being really kind of plain. Or anyone who's a muggle in this show is just really boring and not interesting. They don't even have dialogue. Um, and <laughs> that, then we get to contrast that with the wizarding world, which is so open and expansive and has so much variety in it. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for these extraordinary responses. Thank you um, for thinking about them so deeply and providing such specific examples. It means a lot, and I have no doubt it's going to help the students studying theatre studies at the moment. Thank you so much for your time today, John Sherman and David Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Huge thanks to John Sherman and David Spencer for giving us their time today, and a big shout-out to Lily Everest, who made this conversation possible. There is still time to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, so book your tickets. There's a link in the episode description if you're keen. That is all for this episode of The Aside. There are a bucket load of episodes to listen to if you're interested, so feel free to go through our over 350 episodes to find one that piques your interest. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, or if you have a question for us, feel free to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you hugely to Hate Library for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>